When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Quartz 96 FM. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six is the number to call. The text to the WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email for the show is opinion at 96fm.ie. You can contact us on Twitter at opinionline96. Of course, our hashtag is hashtag OL96. And there's the Cork's 96FM Facebook page. Uh, messages there and mark your message if you will please for the attention of the opinion line an eventful an eventful evening we kind of thought it might be coming then we thought it mightn't be coming and we kind of figured if there's anybody in Irish politics who could slither his way out of this one it would have been Phil Hogan but he fell on his sword last evening um, in Brussels and he said that he had resigned he tendered his resignation as European Commissioner and that that had been accepted by his boss Ursula von der Leyen he insists he wasn't sacked he also insists that he didn't break any law. In fact, in an interview he gave with RTE, he said four times, four times, I counted them, four times, he broke no law. Now, he conveniently forgot uh, the mobile phone situation. But anyway, he's gone. Phil Hogan is gone. I'd like to know what you think about that. The the, the, the numbers in the, in, uh, the names in the frame to replace him, we will discuss a little bit later on. The big name in the frame to replace him is, of course, Simon Coveney. What we know is that Simon Coveney is not doing any media today. We have asked for an interview with uh, Mr. Coveney. We contacted his office last evening through the usual channels, as they say, and we were politely informed he's doing absolutely no media. We'll also be talking to Paul Hosford in the Examiner, one of the people who broke the story uh, last week and to Philip O'Neill from the Irish Farmers Journal uh, about what the whole departure of Phil Hogan might mean mean, mean rather for Ireland. But to the more important things Today is a massive day for a lot of families. Just outside here this morning on Wellington Road, there was little youngsters in uniforms gathering outside 
all excited for the first time since the 12th of March. Just think of that. This is the 27th of August. And for the first time since the 12th of March, they were gathering to meet their friends, to get back to that familiar routine, to get back to school. They've been gone since the 12th of March. Normally they'd have been off for the three months of the summer, but they've been off for six months. And they must be worried and they must be nervous. And I guess parents are too. And I'd like to talk to you. How were you feeling about letting them off this morning? Did you did you bring them to the school this morning? Did you let them off? What did you notice that was different? Was there anything that was different? What did you think of the preparations? Do you think that the teachers are as nervous as you are? Do you think that the children are as nervous as you are? Or is it going all over their little heads, as as these great things should? They're our things to worry about, not theirs. Have we succeeded in that? And we'll get to that uh, a little bit later on. But first of all, let's go to Skull Vrida, Crosshaven. And the principal there is Seamus O'Connell. Everybody back today, Seamus. Um, Nervous? Trepidation? What's the mood down there? Good morning. PJ, good morning. How are you? Well, I think for the teachers anyway, it's like their first day out of college. So they're very nervous. And um, I think the children themselves are absolutely delighted to be coming in from what I've seen already at the gate this morning. The children are more, well, I think the parents are actually more excited than the children. But in general, the children are very excited, you know. What kind of preparations have you had to make? Uh, PJ, to be honest, it's like organising a wedding for 230 children plus 180 families in, in four weeks. So it's been very difficult. Um, and, you know, anybody who will say that we've been well supported isn't 100% aware of what's going on at the ground. Um, to be fair, the documents were released on the 26th of July. Um, there was four parts of the roadmap. One of the documents was exceedingly strong, the, the curriculum one. So that has been has put a huge emphasis on particularly the RSE and, and the Stay Safe uh, lessons in the first month. Um, and I think that's very imperative. And obviously there was a lot of talk about the budgets and $375 million has been spent on this opening today. But I mean, the reality is, from a, even from a staff core perspective, there was only 200 additional teachers given to 3,200 schools across in a primary level. And for us, like, you, you will always have trepidation about new arrangements and so yeah. forth and we'll get through that but the major concern is in the next few weeks as children get sick teachers will get sick we're going to have a major problem putting teachers uh, sorry we're going to have a major problem finding substitutes to, to cover classes you know and, and, yeah. and that is the major difficulty so I mean there has been good guidelines in certain um, in, in how we organise the school however when it comes to HR issues and, and organising substitutes like the, the, the leadership from, from the department has been very poor Minister Foley was on Prime time the other night Correct. gave quite a lengthy interview, and uh, an interview for which she had been extremely well prepared, and she had across her an air of certainty, certainly in herself. She seemed very certain of what she was saying. She said, "It's all very clear. It's all very well laid out. It's all very easy to understand." And she was kind of saying, "Is there what's what's the problem? Let's just do this." You don't you don't get that feeling on the ground? No, PJ. Like the reality is. Like the guidelines in relation to procedures of not allowing, you know, staggering the starts, 
uh, hand washing and so forth. That was all in place anyway, PJ. Like we knew even before we shot on the 12th of March, we were all instigating programs of, of getting the children to wash their hands and bring in hand sanitizers themselves and so forth, okay? Um, the difficulty is, is, is majorly around, you know, what happened even in the secondary school yesterday where they had 150 children in a hall. Fair enough, they had them spatially distant. Some people say that that, that should have happened. Some people say it don't. It shouldn't. So the guidelines are not clear in that perspective. And the second thing is, as I said, all of our concerns, like, you know, I mean, PJI have 230 children going into eight classrooms, okay? If I had 280, 230 children going into eight, or sorry, 230 adults going into eight rooms, it wouldn't happen. So there's huge discrepancies though, between what we as adults are doing on a daily basis and then what's going on in the classrooms. Yeah. Um, and I understand, and you see the word bespoke has been used a huge amount in relation to so- social distancing and the guidelines for schools. But, you know, there's a lot of grey areas within those guidelines. And I, I would appreciate if the minister and the likes of myself, who's a principal on the ground, been trying to implement this for four, for four weeks only, if we were all put on the same platform to discuss it. Because, you know, it's, you will get a lot of buzzwords like the 16, I heard yesterday, there was 16 million additional spent on cleaning and so forth. Well, I would argue that as a school, we should be getting the additional cleaning costs anyway. We shouldn't be having to fundraise to pay for additional cleaning. So to give you an example and a breakdown of numbers, PJ, um, we got 9,000 euro additional just to upgrade the school. Now, on a, in a private entity, a lot of businesses or offices, they'd probably spend 9,000 euro just on doing up the, the toilets for the staff, yeah. you know. Personally, um, the Perspex men yes. alone would get that in some places. Yeah, Seamus, so nice. just in terms of the parents this morning and yeah. the youngsters as they came back into the school, what sense right. did you get? I think everybody is, was anxious to get back. I think children and parents were anxious to get back, but there is a trepidation about our numbers in general. I think everyone, especially when they were coming to the gates this morning, I think everybody has been more or less staying away from each other and having small play dates in a small environment, whereas this morning, it, like we, we spaced out all of our 230 children's arrivals over 30 minutes. But even at that, like, you know, you'd have small queues building up all of a sudden and you could see a trepidation there, you know. But I think in the overall, it's like for us, as a, we're delighted to get the children back because of um, the, the need to see where they're at and to instigate, um, you know, certain children may have risky situations at home that we need to find out about. And the only way we can do that is to get them into school, OK? Yeah. Um, and I think that from the parents' perspective, they're delighted to get a bit of routine in and see some faces because, to be fair, the distance learning that took place um, prior to the closed down schools at the end of June, you know, it was complex and difficult for everyone. Mm. But, I mean, for me personally, I believe that going forward, everyone now is far more open to the idea of the blended learning where week in, week out. I yeah. Personally here, I'd be able to half my class sizes, quality education, for a week, quality interactions, no, not the same trepidation and concerns over yeah. tripping over social distancing guidelines and so forth. But I think it's the uncertainty of what is going to happen that is bothering you and others and others most, Seamus. Yeah, and I mean, look, I'm, I'm going to be in a position, PJ, where if a staff member or two or three are, are ill, um, and I, I, you know, traditionally myself or an SET, a special educational teacher, would take a class for a day and then we'd try and find a sub, and if not, we'd disperse the children for three or four days between the rest of the school, okay? We can't do that, PJ, and I'm, I'm adamant that children who need support, who have dyslexia, who have yeah. other learning, just, they're not going to lose out on their, their special educational needs time, okay? okay? So therefore, we're in a problem where will we be able to find a sub, will we have an additional sub to cover a class for a day? And then, you know, probably we won't, and then I'm in a situation where I have to start saying to parents, keep their children home yeah. for three or four days because we don't have the sub cover. And, so and, that's, that's, and that's not a situation you want to be no, at, but it's one, yeah. it's one that you're dreading. And let alone if a child happens to bring an infection into a class where you have only eight rooms for 230-odd. Seamus, I'm going to leave it there. Nervous times. I wish everybody Thanks. everybody in Crosshaven and Skullrida the very, very best of good fortune uh, going forward. Let's.
go to uh, Beaumont. Uh, Marge O'Brien is principal of Beaumont Girls. Marge, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. How are you? I'm not too bad. So, it have you good. breathed a sigh of relief yet that every, everybody's back and so far the place hasn't fallen down? No, I'm in a slightly different situation to shame. It's, it's our entire staff are back today for what we call a planning day. Right. Even though on the ground, uh, it, to be fair, people have been in for the last two two weeks and the management team have been in for the whole month of August. But officially, we've six hours today now. It's all kind of the small little last minute dot com jobs. Yeah. Um, and the children would be coming in tomorrow. But to be honest, I feel we couldn't be any more ready than we are. And we've kept the parents informed all the way along on our Twitter feed and on the school app with little videos of the changes and what will be happening and on the ground and that kind of thing. So that they um, so that when they arrive, they know what to expect to kind of demystify it almost. So um, and we had our infants in uh, at the start of the week as well. So we have we, we kind of identified them as maybe being a little bit more vulnerable in terms of that, you know, that they might be anxious or worried. So we brought them in at the start of the week in little groups of six um, to meet their teachers and visit their classrooms yeah. and that kind of thing. So look, we're, I feel very positive, to be honest. Um, sure, look, we don't know what's coming down the tracks. So I, I've heard she, Seamus chatting there. I would be slightly nervous about the cold November, December thing as well. But I think at the moment, the focus is just get the children in the door, get the routines back up and running. One of the lines on the roadmap that really resonated with me actually was, um, it was a phrase, slow down, you know, that we should slow down to speed up. I think that was in re- relation to academic attainment so that that won't be the focus initially. Yeah. The focus initially will be settling the kids in, making sure that they're all okay, establishing where everybody is at, and then that they will move on from wherever they're at themselves. Um. So, yeah, I mean, we've loads of, um, like, particular things in place, one-way systems, and we have extra hand basins put into resource and learning support rooms, and um, we've, up, you know, we've hand sanitizers on the walls, and we've staggered um, entry and exit times. And one of our teachers, actually, who's very kind of creative and visual, um, she suggested that we would do coloured channels. So when any gate that the children come in, you're either red, yellow or blue. Mm. You know, classrooms have a particular colour and you follow those footsteps and arrows to your entry and exit point. So once they've done that two or three times, sure, they're creatures of habit and they'll know it all. Mm. But that was just to allay the anxiety that they may have or parents may have because the new system now involves that you drop and go. Yes. So a lot of the young children... Leading you know, them in actually, by the hand is a thing of the it, past. It's a thing it's of the past. And actually, we have a dual ca- school campus here, so we're further up on the site. You boys as well. And, you know, how how many youngsters are on the campus, Mark? So, your own site? So our own site is about the 270, and uh-huh. then we have a boys' school as well, and that's about 300. So we have a you, lot. But we, it, we, it's, we, not, it's not even in the wildest stretches of the imagination possible to keep 500 kids following a set of rules all day long? Uh, you'd be, no, you'd be surprised at this age. Okay. Well, of course, I would say, yeah, I mean, they're, like, school is a different environment. You know, you tell your child to do something at home and they may do it or they may not do it. But um, for the most part in school, uh, they're extremely well behaved. They're very respectful. They know there's rules and regulations. They're kind of used to that. Um, so generally speaking, they, the teachers will, even for the yard now, for instance, we've had to break the yard up into zones. So we'll have zones coned off on the first day. But the teachers will bring the children out well before yard time, show them the area that their class bubble can play in, 
And then so that when, when it happens and they go out, uh, they, they know what to do and where they can go and can't, can't go. But the other thing is as well, PJ, is like all of the protocols and the procedures and everything we've put in place, should they're all working documents. So anything that the children are finding difficult or anything that doesn't work, Sure, we'll sit down, we'll have a look at it, we'll tweak it again, and we'll drive on. You won't be going, I get the sense, you won't be going straight into sums and spellings and reading not and a, writing. Not at all, no, no. Um, there was, uh, there's lovely resources out there on the, the, the roadmap, actually, or on the Return to School website. The government website has a wellbeing toolkit. There's plenty of materials in that. We do ourselves a weaving wellbeing programme. I know some of the teachers uh, have also been looking at uh, resources on Twinkle to do with settling kids back into school. Mm. So there's plenty there if, if you give the, the staff the time to do it. And uh, and then we've also said, like, it's like anything else, if there's been a trauma or there's been a... that you talk about it. You know, you don't kind of pretend it didn't happen. So you'll be asking them, how was lockdown for you? And how did you get on? And what did you do? And how did you find it? And discussing all those feelings, you know, yeah. and allowing the children kind of process them together. So... We're going to be kind of, you know, uh, as you said, not heading straight back into long division anyway. That, that won't be that won't be on the agenda for the first week or so. Mm. And we've also kind of put a hiatus on homework too. Oh. And that's a kind of a, for the foreseeable, and that's a kind of a, to help the children settle in. But also, like, it's difficult for families as well. Like, we've all kind of slowed down a bit. You know, it's a bit harder to get out the door in the morning. It's a bit harder to remember what was going into all the different lunch boxes. We have to find the Tupperware and the lids again. You know, there's, like there's all these things that are happening and even laying out the clothes the night before or maybe having to wash uniforms. So look, there'll be plenty going on for the meantime. So if we get them in school and that they mm-hmm. can have a nice day and they're enthusiastic about coming in the next day, we yeah. start from there. Actually, you mentioned the homework and you're not the first school that we've heard of that is at least for a while yeah. not going to bother with any any homework. Yeah. Yeah. As a teacher, as a principal, as an educator, do, do you think that that's a good idea? Uh, now, that's part of a larger conversation, I suppose. Yeah. I would be obviously a huge fan of reading and reading with your child and reading to your child. And, you know, that may, may not be part of homework anywhere or maybe, but it's it's something that is hugely beneficial. Um, I suppose what we plan to do long term is just be prepared in case there is another uh, shutdown or lockdown at short notice is the platforms that we intend to use with the children. We will get together now at our staff meetings and what are called our Croke Park hours after school. We'll decide what platforms we're going to use. We'll have them researched, set up and get the children set up. Then the teachers will slowly introduce the use of them in the classroom so that if we did have to close and children had to work from home, that they'd be using an interface that they're already familiar with. They'd be familiar with the icons and how it works and clicking on this and what that will open up and all that kind of thing. And they'll see their little name up there. So you're you're kind of preparing for a worst-case scenario situation. I think so. I think it's it's the only sensible thing to do. Because really, the last time, it it is truth. I know a lot of like a lot of people were saying to me, "Sir, you li- you didn't know. You got no heads up. We got no heads up. We got four hours notice yeah. that we were closing." And oh, I you had before that was, was rumor. Yeah, yeah. And I I was actually thought I was quite clever saying to myself, "We definitely won't be back till after Easter. We won't be back till after Easter." Uh, you know, prepare for kind of five weeks or whatever. I mean, nobody thought that we would be out this long. You know, nobody did. So, um, 
No, I'm not saying, and I have no interest in that happening again, but at the same time, we need to have something in our back pockets just in case the scenario arises, that we're ready and that we can flick a switch and, you know, do you know, do you know what, learning Marge? and be rag condol. Yeah. Do you know what? That last 40 seconds of our conversation, I think, will have inspired more confidence in parents than a lot of uh, what we said previously. You're preparing for the worst and hoping for the, for the best. best. That's, yeah. that's, and, that's, and that's a very good that's and a very I think good as plan. school leaders as well, we have to be very positive because whatever attitude we have will obviously permeate the, uh, the, the atmosphere in the school and the, the, the levels of anxiety amongst the staff and the children and the parent body and whatever. So we have to be upbeat and we have to say, look, the, the opening of the schools is so important to, the, to our society. It's so important to get our children back into that routine. I know there was, you know, some children had a lovely positive experience and all that kind of thing. They were out riding their bikes. I said to somebody, it was like Biker Grove around Black Rock. But um, a lot of children didn't have that, you know. Yeah. So there's a huge variety of experiences out there. So we have to, I think having them back in school is definitely the best thing. Okay, so hope for the best. Prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. And I wish you and all of the pupils and teachers there, and at every other school starting this morning, uh, the absolute best. Uh, Siobhan in St. Luke says, Marge sounds like a great principal. That's real leadership. Of course she's scared. We're all scared. But life must go on. It's only with that kind of leadership and pragmatism that people will be able to get up and going. Another thing that was pointed out to me in the last 24 to 48 48 hours, by by somebody who works with vulnerable children, is that many children have been losing out for the last six months on alarm systems. In other words, these children come from a vulnerable, troubled background. The school may be their only alarm system, and they've been missing out on that, and getting them into the school is really, really important. Which it is. 1850 Thanks, But I love the preparation factor. I love that. Finn says, it sounds great, but keeping the kids in procedure in school might be feasible. However, they pal around with pupils from other classes and other schools. This is a ticking time bomb, which is another fact. Kate says there should be a panel of teachers on call from the subs that could go in and take over from a teacher who's gone, rather than have kids wondering what's going on. Jennifer is waiting to talk to me on line one. Where, where, where um, are you? I was actually... Um on my way to a Juco gym, there to go training, and I passed. And when I seen outside the church, um, St. Patrick's Church, with parents with their two young children sleeping rough. Oh, you saw them. I beg your pardon, Jennifer. Yeah. You saw yeah. them. Okay, you came. And what time was this? Um, I went straight away, about five to nine, and they were standing up, gathering their bits. Um, and their little girl was playing on the steps. She was only about four. Okay. And there was a little boy there as well. Okay, this was on the steps of St. Patrick's yeah. Church? Yeah. Five minutes walk away from me here. Yeah. They were sleeping rough, like their blankets were on the floor, and there was a pram, and the pram was faced. The oh. back of the pram was faced away from me, so I'm not sure if there was a younger child there or not. They were out there in all this rain? Yeah. Did you talk to them? No, no. What did they, what were they, they were just gathering their stuff together? They were gathering their stuff, um, their blankets and stuff, and their little girl was playing on the steps. Right, and what age would you have put on the children, would you think? Oh, the little girl is only about, I mean, if that pram is hers, she's only about three or four. Right. 
And the little boy, he's probably about 10 or 11. Right. Men, men of the house are way too, way too young an age. And yeah. and no house to to be men of. No, and no house. You didn't see mom, did you, did you? Did you see what? what so they, what? Did you they're, see? They're, they're a young enough couple. Right. I would say maybe 40s, like maybe late 30s, 40s, like. Oh, there was a couple there rather than just a mom, is that right? Oh, no, it's a mother and father, oh, yeah. I, no, I'm, I'm just children. picking up the information here as you go through. So there's a mother and father and, say, a three-year-old and maybe a ten-year-old, and they were on the steps of St. Patrick's Church at Fight the child was, Yeah, the child was playing yes. while the parents were gathering up blankets and their bits and pieces. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. These people were living rough with yeah. their two children. And given the, the, the weather that we've looked... The weather, we, it's horrendous. We woke up to this morning. Yeah. And you know, nothing about them nor who they are or... You no. never, and you said you go to the gym, so you, you pass that place regularly, yeah? I, I'm on my two-week holidays from work and it's the first time I've ever passed it this hour of the morning because I dropped my own daughter off to school, going back to school this morning and to see, like, all the happy faces, all the kids giggling so happy going up to school and then to come down and see that I know Do you know like Fergal said when you rang us you were very upset I am still very upset yeah. they're children they're, they're a family on the streets and I I, I, I can't comprehend it as, as a mother myself I know to watch two children on the street like that child, little, like, little uh, child playing go to bed yeah, our, ch- our children go to warm beds. They go to sleep. They're they're protected inside their home from the wind, the rain. These poor children are out are out in, are out in it. They're being blown away. Obviously, every night of the week because we've had horrendous winds. Crikey! What 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 does one do in a situation like that? I I don't know because you know what it's an absolute disgrace. And people, I, I could see people looking this morning and I know they were thinking the very same thing that I was. Yeah. Like, what, what what are we doing about this? We're doing absolutely nothing. Just turning about blind eye and carrying on. Walking, getting on with our own daily lives when people have absolutely nothing living on the streets. Yeah. And, and I guess when you're watching it, it's kind of going through your mind, do I go over do I say hello? Did you think about going over? I did. I did. I actually did. And then, like, I was saying, like, what, what offer of help am I going to give these people? Yeah. What, what can I do to help these people, like? Yeah. I know. Like, and how many empty buildings are there in Cork? How many empty homes are there in Cork? Surely, Peter God, we can start. Or I don't care. Well, within within fifty yards, within fifty yards of of where they are or where they were, there must surely have been four walls. It might not be the most comfortable four walls, but there must surely have been four walls that no one was using that they could have been there instead of in the doorway of a go. church. Doorway of a church, yeah. Obviously, these people sleep there every night. This is not something that they just decided to roll out this morning and 
oh, we're going to sleep rough. They obviously do this every night. That's where they live with you, their children. You, you get the impression from looking at them that they knew that they were going through sort of a routine. Is that it? Oh, the routine, pure routine. You can see it's a routine. They obviously stay there. Yeah. Wow. Well, they obviously stay there, right? Do you know, you might think you've done nothing, but actually, by contacting us, you've you've made us aware and everybody listening to the programme aware that this young family are there. Whatever use that is, it might be some, it might be none. So I'm heartbroken over it. I'm absolutely heartbroken. We're going to try and contact the, the people in the church uh, and see if they're aware of them. Um, the, 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 the fathers down there may have some idea. We'll get on yeah. to Simon. We'll get on to Penny Dinners. If, if they're known to Penny Dinners, um, we'll find out very quickly more about them and we'll see if they're on a nice run or anything. So yeah. thank you. What, thank what you, you, Rod, you didn't go over to them and I know it was going through your mind, well, did I do the right... You, you picked up the phone to us. You've done the right thing. Like they were busy. They were busy packing up their I know, stuff. I know. Well, and I would presume they wanted to get food for their children. Well, you know, and know. Well, we can like, reach out. We can reach out. And we'll make some calls. And we'll see okay. what we can find out. Thank you very much. No, And thank you, Jennifer, for making the call. Thank you. Have Enjoy a good day. day. Take care now. Bye-bye. 1850-715-996. That's outside. Now, I don't, you might, whether you're familiar with this family, whether you've seen them, I don't know. But they were outside St. Patrick's Church. She said just before nine o'clock this morning, she was on her way to the gym. And she found a family pair. I was just getting the information there as we were building it up. Two parents and two small children in the foyer of the church down there, St. Patrick's, about five minutes walk from They had blankets and little provisions. Okay, uh, just hearing back now that the church authorities, the fathers are aware of them. Uh, they believe they are from Galway and that there's three children involved. We thank very much Jennifer, who was desperately upset when she first spoke to Fergal before news at nine. Um, and she took a call with me there now just a second ago. We, we've established through the church, to the fathers at the church, that they are from Galway and that there are three children. And that they obviously are known to the church now because they were staying on the steps of St. Patrick's Church. We're, we're reaching out to our to our various contacts in the various uh, groups around town. Lots of people calling, offering to help, and we're trying to figure out what we can do for them. Uh, why is this still happening, says uh, a tweet. This is heartbreaking. There needs to be less talk and more action. God help them. Catherine wonders, so the priests know of them and couldn't open the door of the church for them. Shame on them. It was an awful night. Declan, for the first time ever, I feel like I need to turn off your show. This is an indictment, an indictment of us as a nation, as a people. This is a mirror that needs to be held up to all of us and have a good look at ourselves. My stomach is turned. Well, Declan, why would you turn the show off? Our job is lift the lid on crap like this. Our job is lift the lid and hold feet to the flames about stuff like this. So stick with us, because we're going to try and help these people. It's not our job, but the people whose job it is aren't doing it, other than brilliant people like... Katrina Toomey and that. I'm talking about the the fellows who were chowing down on the chicken and chips in Galway last week. They're not doing their jobs for these people. This may well cause some arguments, but it has to be said, says a WhatsApp message. We're so concerned with nouns these days and how we should address people, and yet we have families homeless in this day and age. 
to be living in the doorway of a church is just so wrong. Another call. Maybe if the politician's money for dinner was being spent on these people, they'd get a hotel room. I'd have gone down myself if I knew. What's going on in this country is a disgrace. I'm nearly hysterical listening to this. It's like listening to Oliver Twist or something. Those rich TDs robbing the people and lying to the morning, noon and night. Nora says this is heartbreaking. She has blankets that she'd like to donate. And you know, as I listen to Jennifer and as I read the comments and, and, and see what is unfolding before me, and I think that this morning week, about a week ago today, Aoife Grace Moore and her colleague Paul Hosford started to get messages about shenanigans the previous night in Galway, in a hotel function room. Politicians, business leaders, judges, European commissioners, and whatever you're having yourself, partying down after their golf outing. Regulations be damned. Partying down after their golf outing. And possibly as they were partying down after their golf outing, this family was bedding down in the foyer of a church. Let that sit in your mind for a second and see what you think. A friend of mine said to me Saturday that he'd never heard me so angry on the radio as I was last Friday, and I was. I am again now, as the thoughts of that shower in Clifton, that rotten shower in Clifton, chowing down on chicken and chips and slugging pints after their day on the golf course, and this little family bedding down in a shagging churchyard, Finn. Good morning, Peter. How are you? Not too bad, my friend. I'm calming down a small bit. Yeah, it's not like you to get angry. And when you get angry, it takes an exceptional circumstance. Um, and my point to Fargal there was, is this has been going on wholesale. And I made a point a few weeks back, and these people go home a half a saw who have dealt with this poor family. We don't know their circumstances. And to be honest with you, I don't care. But these people should be dealt with before anybody else. And in the sense that when, if an election comes around, they're all knocking on the door. And you've only got one or, two, one or two TDs and people who are running for election who care about people. The rest care about politics. You've got the likes of Katrina Toomey and you've got the likes of everybody else breaking their backs day in, day out, 24-7. Yet at half past four, quarter to five, these people come statistics to the people who have dealt with them through screens and not on a personal level. So the buck needs to stop at the beginning, not at the people who were at Galway last week. That was a disgrace, a national disgrace. But lads, it's a localised disgrace. I think it's the contrast was getting to me, Finn, the contrast. And we we remember, before the pandemic hit, this was the biggest single issue. And this is not the first time I've spoken about families in dire circumstances. I've spoken to families in dire circumstances. I think the contrast got to me. PJ, I'm in agreement with you. You're right to be angry, but I'm saying, like as I said to Fargal, it's not like you to be angry. And the sense that you're angry, imagine the people that deal with these people on a voluntary basis every single day of the week and every night of the week taking phone calls, trying to house people. And let's face it, if somebody needed to be housed, it would be quite easy to house them, put them in a hotel, put them somewhere, and the system has failed. Not just these people, but there's hundreds of other around the country as well. Just because... And I'm trying to put a light spin on this, if I can. This, this, the kids are what affecting, the children are what are affecting this lady this morning and affecting you, in the sense that adults can fend for themselves, children are helpless. And as the saying goes, suffer little children, but something, some 
system say, do you know what? We're doing something wrong and put people before politics. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, we've just been reminding, Deirdre's just reminding me here. The first homeless family that we ever spoke to on the opinion line uh, when the programme started in 2014, the first homeless family that we ever spoke to at any length was, uh, mom was called Rebecca. She happened to be the partner of Gary Deneen Finn. Oh my God. We've just remembered, you did, did remember this over the last few days. Gary, as we all know, that happened to that yeah. poor bugger. Yeah. And, 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 and he had told me in that interview, the woman yeah. he was talking to about, that was Rebecca. She died this and year. Ev, 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 see, everybody, everybody knows somebody, and that's the thing. Everybody knows somebody who's going through a hardship. And like, like I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke up anybody's backsides here in the sense that the people who care are the people that don't get paid to care. They're the people that go out there morning, noon, and night to make sure people are safe. Now, whether they're doing it for political gain or, or upmanship, I don't know, but I don't care. But the people that are in power don't care. You've got one or two that you can put on the air any single time, and they'll spin you yarn. Simon Coveney did a Johan Cruyff with this whole thing last week with this golf gate. I'm sick to my teeth of golf gate because there's people underneath the, the arches of St. Patrick's Church in our city who are now suffering because of these people. So that's all I'm saying. People before politics. Finn, thank you for the call. 1850-715-996. Yeah, those stories, they just don't have happy endings. That's the problem. All right. I want to go to the Leaving Cert um, because the Labour Party has called on the new Minister for Education, Norma Foley, uh, to drop school profiling from this calculated grading model. We've not been able to drag out of the Minister yet what criteria they're using, what their modelling algorithm, to use a technical term, is for the grades when they come out on the 7th of September. The fear is, the fear is that because calculated grades work along like a computer model, that children from schools in disadvantaged areas will suffer through the grading system. Neighbour spokesman on education is Aon O'Reardon. Aon, I, just with respect, if you let me go for one minute to the story you may have been listening to there while we were waiting to come on air. Yeah, I, I only heard the end of it, but uh, no, I, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're referring to it, yeah. A, a family sleeping in a doorway in Cork City. Yeah. It's, it's continuing. I think what the pandemic has has done, and and your last um, contributor was right um, when you talk about people before politics, like it has ripped over, ripped open the bandaid of 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 um, Irish politics when we were told that certain things couldn't be done, and then when the pandemic arrived, they all could be done. So we could put a ban, a ban on on rent increases, we could put a ban on evictions, we could we could nationalise the private health service, we could uh, introduce a payment of three fifty a week for everybody. All these things that we were all told we couldn't do, uh, then when the pandemic arrived, we could do. So um, I don't know the ins and outs of the case, but I know where I am in Dublin, it's 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 very similar. I know we we're not talking about housing as much as we were, but there are changes now to the. Um, to, to the uh, emergency legislation around evictions that has in where, where I am uh, has led to a kind of a sense that evictions can start again and some of the evictions are illegal but some but still it's that sense yeah. that the emergency uh, feeling around the country has gone yeah. and this is this is 
this is what's so disappointing is that you know I don't believe anybody in, in, in government has ill will I, I don't believe anybody in government is trying to make people homeless but I think if we had the same pandemic emergency feeling around homelessness uh, as we had about about the virus then situations that you you're describing on your okay. on your show this morning I wouldn't happen okay um okay. but that, that that's the, I I think um I think the anger that the, that has been you know on your show this morning is justified okay okay let's let's talk about the leaving cert the worry is I think that students because the grades are going to be calculated the final calculation could be based on 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 their school rather than them and and, and what's the concern there well, as you know, the Leaving Cert has never necessarily been fair on everybody. It's quite brutal and always has been. But when you went into that exam hall and sat down uh, and put in your exam number on the script, whoever was reading your script and marking it, it didn't know who you were or where you were from. And that was the fairness of it. Uh, if you were trying to break out of disadvantage or prejudice uh, or poverty, this was your this is your big chance. You had the same opportunities anybody else. Now, to the to, to the assess grade system, and we didn't call for the written exam to be to be dropped. By the way, we, we in the Labour Party, we were the only party not to advocate for it to be to be to be cancelled because we weren't convinced that a fair system could replace it. But anyway, assess, assess grades have come in. And within that system, there'll be an algorithm that takes into consideration the school that you came from and the and the history, the academic history of that school. Yeah. So it's trying to say that, look, uh, what, what the department's argument is that we can't have a situation where this year's grading is, is completely out of sync with, with previous years. Having said that, that doesn't give account for a student who goes to a disadvantaged school, who's trying to break out of that disadvantage and who is possibly doing a higher level subject that the school doesn't offer. And this happens a lot. There's some students who will, will, will teach themselves higher level yes. maths, will teach themselves higher level Irish yes. because it's not an offer in school. Now, and you're fearful that they won't get credit for it in, in yeah, the well, automatic in the automatic grading. Yeah, and and we've how do we stop that from happening? Well, we've we, we've been told we've been wrong, and and we had no evidence. I suppose, uh, to prove that we were right until the UK situation broke a number of weeks ago. And every single jurisdiction in the UK, including Northern Ireland, have had to reverse their algorithm and go back to teacher grading because it was proven that disadvantaged students were disproportionately hurt by the system. Now, I think Norma Foley, Minister Foley, uh, if she used to change this, and I think there's a sense that, that this may be changed even this weekend, I think it would be a good move because what we don't want to happen is that a student who has this one chance to break out of where they are, to break out of disadvantage and prejudice, to to make a new start for themselves, that the, the year of 2020 is the reason why they didn't get to do it. And there may be other people who have the finances to go to the High Court and challenge the Department of Education over the grading that their student got. Not every family has that opportunity. There's 11 do- days till the results come out. Can we, well, can we see what's going to happen before that? It's amazing what can happen in 11 days. It's amazing what can happen in 11 days. A week ago, you know, people were getting ready to have a golf dinner. And a week later, you know, the world has completely changed in, in that period of time. If, it, if the will is there, I think the minister needs to look at what happened in the UK. And every single minister of education said it wouldn't happen. And then it did. And then they changed. So I think the system should bend until it breaks mm. to prevent a young person being just doubly disadvantaged. And if it means we need more college places, if it means we need to put extra financing in place, well, then so be it. Okay. Because that 
is a small price to pay than having somebody not being able to have a fair crack at a whip as they have had, have had in previous years. Okay, leave it there for now. Thank you very much. Eanor Reardon, uh, Education Spokesman of the Labour Party. And he's right, what happened in the UK, what happened in the North, they made such a hames of it. And there could be, there'll be lawsuits to bait the band. We have an opportunity to not have that happen here. He's right about that. Whether it'll happen is another another guess, I suppose. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Corks 96 FM. 1857-15996 is the number. The text or WhatsApp, both 083-396-9696. The email for the show, opinion at 96fm.ie. Uh, the Twitter is at OpinionLine96. Of course, our hashtag, hashtag OL96. And the Facebook, you contact the Cork's 96FM Facebook page and message, send your message or address your message, please, for the attention of the Opinion Line. A huge response to Jennifer's call in the last hour. Re that young family, we now believe to be a family with three children and from County Galway. We have that from the church. Uh, the church, the fathers in the church tell us that they're from County Galway and that there are three children, possibly even more, but certainly three children. Uh, we've reached out to our range of contacts and many of our contacts have reached back to us to see what can be done and can we find out more. Huge reaction from listeners as well. A lot of listeners very angry, very upset, very bothered by it all this morning. I will return to it if we can add anything further to it. Also, we'll go back to uh, back to school a little bit later on. But last night came, I think what from about four o'clock appeared to be inevitable. Uh, we were actually discussing it here after the show in our meeting, like what would actually happen with Phil Hogan. And, and it was kind of a, a division in the room. Fergal was completely convinced that he was gone. It was only a matter of time. And I was kind of saying, if anybody, and Deirdre was kind of saying, if, if anybody can can get out of it, Phil Hogan can get out of it. Turns out afterwards he didn't. And he tendered his resignation to the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, yesterday. Now, we don't know, did he tender it willingly? Or did she ask for it? Did she say, resign or you will be sacked? We don't know that. He insists that he resigned of his own volition and that it was his own decision to resign. Whether that's true, well, that's he, we have to take him in his word for that. He also gave a lengthy interview to RTE, to Tony Connolly, in which, strangely enough, he said four times, and I wondered why four times he insisted that he'd broken no law, but he insisted that it was his decision to retire and that he wasn't told by President von der Leyen, you got to go. But how far have we travelled in a week? Around this time last week, two young journalists were working on other stories, other mundane political stories at the time, and they got a call or calls that they should be looking into something that had happened in Galway on the previous night. One of those young journalists was Paul Hosford. Paul, good morning. Morning, PJ. I'm, I'm very, very flattered that you call me young. I, I don't. I certainly don't feel young. <laughs> no, you've probably aged by ten years in the course of the week. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Aoife was explaining to me last Friday that you were you were both working on on something else, and and yeah. you were kind of directed down a particular line of inquiry, as it were. And and here we yeah. are today. 
Yeah, and like you, you know, you know yourself. Sometimes you get a tip off that that something has happened, and and you might chase it all day, and it, it might be a dead end. And for us, it was the case of there was there was names on a list, so it was just get cracking and and, and try and find out as much as possible before before putting it putting it out there. So yeah, it was it was it was a big day's work, and it was, there was a lot of phone calls, and there was a lot of back and forth between myself and Eva and our our news editor John O'Mahony all all day, kind of just. To, to nail down the finer points and to nail down the detail of, of yeah. what actually had gone on in, in the Station House Hotel in Clifton. So, yeah, it was, a, it was one, did, of those, one of those things where, thankfully, you chased the tip and, and it worked out. Did you think when you were typing it up that a week later we'd have lost a cabinet minister, lost the last Cahirlic of the Shannon, now lost a European commissioner, and focus on a Supreme Court judge that hasn't gone away, you know? To, to coin a phrase it it what a week yeah and it, it's one of those things again it comes back to when you're when you are a journalist and when you think a story is important and sometimes sometimes you might just be a bit blinded because you either we're, you know we're in the, the Lenser House bubble or we're in the media bubble we think this this is really really important and you put it out there and, and the public doesn't react the same way for us it was once it went once it went live last week um, Aoife tweeted it and the tweet took off and you were kind of going hang on this is as big as we thought it was um, did I think that it was going to have the fallout that it did the first kind of tip off was, was Friday morning the fact that Derek Leary's uh, resignation came so quickly uh, the fact that he was he was down to do radio interviews on the Friday morning and was pulled from the short notice I, I, I woke up Friday in a report seven I looked at my phone and saw that he'd been pulled from radio and jumped out of the bed and was on the phone to to, to the talk office straight away to say, "Look, this day is going to be this day is going to be fast moving and it's going to be big." And then, then the the, the live line show I think on Friday was was a big thing. Yeah. Um, people were you could you got the sense that oh, we we, we, we had it here as well for nearly three solid hours of the fury. But let, let's move from the fury to the fallout, like. It went international. A European commissioner has has stepped down. It's massive. Like, were you expecting as many resignations? And and do you still think Seamus Wolf is in trouble? Well, I, like, I don't know that I expected as many resignations. And for us, it was never about. We never like we never set out to to claim scalps. It was never about chasing heads just for the, the sake of it. And I made this point the other day. This isn't. I don't. The, the anger about all of this was never about just seeing a head roll. Sometimes we we get that, and the media can get carried away with it, and the public can get carried away with it. Where we we just want to see somebody sacked, just because it's a, it's a bit interesting and it's a bit of drama. I never got the sense that this, and um, particularly from myself and Aoife's point of view, this was never about just getting somebody. Uh, it was about following where the story went. And, and one of the things that, that came with it was that the questions that needed to be answered. And I think one of those questions still does remain is, is Seamus Wolfe's um, attendance at, at the event. Now, members of the Oireachtas and the DSAC particularly have said the separation of powers is, is in the Constitution. It's not something they're willing to interfere with. And that's absolutely fine. But, but the counterpoint to that is that if there is separation of powers between legislators and the judiciary, then... But, but he's, he's in, is he not? He is being investigated by, shall we say, his own side now. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has asked that his conduct be, be investigated to see if there was any any actual rules or code of conduct that he's breached. Uh, I'm not a barrister. I'm not 
that okay with the, the code of conduct that, that judges are, are held to. There's some argument back and forward on Twitter that he may or may not have. Um, I, I'm not qualified to actually say whether he did or not. But the fact that he has been investigated is fairly unprecedented. Yeah. Okay, let's look at at the resignation of of Phil Hogan and and what it now results in. First of all, the problem of whether or not we can retain the the, the, the trade portfolio. I'll, I'll deal with that later with with them um, with Phelan from from the Farmers Journal and how important it might be. But just in regard to who might replace Phil Hogan, the name in the frame, the name in everybody's frame, and he's been he's not doing any media today. We did request is Simon Coveney. No. Yeah, uh, uh, one of the things that that's been interesting th- this morning is that there there's been some signal out of Brussels that they would like and they would prefer that a big name be sent over, um, that they wouldn't accept kind of a technocrat or a career European. Because uh, David O'Sullivan was being mentioned last night. Now he's a very very high profile and has a background in trade. He's a, he's a, if you like, he's a he's a European Union lifer in terms of of that. He has a massive profile, but you're getting the sense that no, Brussels want a name. They want yeah, and they want somebody with with that weight and, and with that experience to restore the confidence in in the Commission and to restore confidence in the Commission's position on Brexit. So Simon Coveney, foreign, foreign Affairs Minister, has won plaudits all over Europe for his handling of the Brexit talks in the last. 18 months, very, very calm, comes across very well on, on media, would be an excellent person to kind of take the point mm. in, in terms of handling the media as these talks go on. Yeah, uh, to, to give him credit, he, he's always been um, complimented for his understanding of the intricacies of it, even by his, his harshest critics will, will, will say he understands it. But the problem is that were he to go out to, to Brussels, where of course he's been before as an MEP, that would cause a by-election in Cork South Central. Do you really think Fine Gael want to try and defend that seat? Well, the, the, the three names that came up when this started to kick off around about Saturday, there were three names mentioned. There were Simon Coveney, Pascal Donoghue and Leo Varadkar. That's how seriously Fine Gael were seen to be taking the, the, the role of European Commissioner. The thing about all three of those is that they're by-elections that, they're, that they would really prefer not to run. Uh, Leo Varadkar's constituency in Dublin West was won very clearly by the Sinn Féin candidate there, Paul Donnelly. Dublin Central, where Pascal Donoghue is, could go, would probably go left again. Um, and, and it's Mary Lou McDonald's constituency, so she'd probably bring in another uh, Sinn Féin councillor. In Corksdale Central, you have the unique position where two of the other three seats, aside from Simon Coveney, belong to Fianna Fáil, and they belong to very, very high-profile people in the Taoiseach, Michal Martin and... Mm. Plus, plus the fact that the the candidate, the obvious candidate, were there to be a by-election, well, he's not exactly going to look well up on a poster either, Jerry Buttermore, given the the fallout from last week. Exactly, and he he was the former last councillor of, of the or last Cahillac of the Senate who who stepped down. He was at the he was at the dinner. Um, the other candidate potentially will be Des Cal, former mayor of Cork City. So there's, there's, there'd be some. I, I suppose you'd even you'd be starting to have an election before the by-election to, to, to find a candidate for Fine Gael. Uh, it would be very, very difficult to see them winning that by-election, seeing any of the government parties winning and that know, by-election. And you know, Paul, that's the thing. In the corridors of power, as it were, and, and in the, in the not their smoke-filled rooms anymore, but you know what I mean, of, of Fine Gael, which will they prioritise? Holding the Trade Commission or keeping the seat? 
At this point, the, the, the feeling is that the, the Trade Commission will be the bigger prize uh, for long-term stability uh, of the particularly protecting the, the Brexit talks. The thing about it is, is that the, the value of having the Trade Commission, it's unquantifiable, but there's a reason that countries are vying for it, that smaller countries around the rest of the size of Ireland are jockeying for a position to get it, to get their commissioner moved to it now. EU commissioners are supposed to represent the entire bloc. They're not supposed to put their country first. But we're all human, and we all we would all be lying if we said that if we got the same job that we wouldn't yeah. be more acutely aware of, of things yeah. that would benefit or, or negatively impact Ireland. So, so they may they may well they may well pu- pu- push them out there to and and take the take the hit perhaps at a by election to keep the to keep the the position. Of course, the other question is like is. Th- the nomination is the gift of the government of the day, which is led by Fianna Fáil. So, so is it not in Micheál Martin's gift? There'll have to be a deal done there, won't there? It, well, the deal is already done um, because in the in the program for government working document, the agreement was made that the the full term for the next EU commissioner, which begins in 2024, will come around when in when there's a Fianna Gael shop, presumably Leo Varadkar. Uh, and the agreement has been made that that will be a Fianna Fáil nominee. Have, yeah. um, but the other thing is that there, there's a, a European element to this in that the von der Leyen Commission is made up of uh, representatives from both the European People's Party, which Fianna Gael is a member of, and the AODE, yeah. which, is, which Fianna Fáil is yeah. a member of. And th- that coalition will be down one EPP member. They wouldn't they want, wouldn't want to, another. Got, another got, AODE. Just, I need to move... Quickly, Paul, give me in one one sentence, call it for me. Coveney to go to Brussels? Uh, yes, I, I think you, at this point, yes. Okay, Paul Hosford from the Irish Examiner, one of the journalists who broke this whole story uh, a week ago, reckons that Simon Coveney is already looking at new luggage. Will Only time will tell. Let's go to Philem O'Neill, who's the markets specialist at the Farmer's Journal. I want to talk about the departure, film of Phil Hogan from... The office of, of trade commissioner. Now, regardless of the politics that led to it, let's 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 look at the impact of his of his leaving that that office. How how serious is it for us? Good morning. Uh, good morning, PJ. Yes, uh, you, you touched on there previously with Paul. Just uh, uh, occupying the trade commissionership. It's one of the most senior portfolios within the European Commission. Uh, uh, Phil Hogan had served as Agriculture Commissioner previously. So we had a very, very close link and understanding of farming uh, and agriculture in Ireland and indeed across Europe that he brought into that role. Now, his departure means, and again, you touch on it, uh, a new Irish Commissioner, the skill now is to get that portfolio retained for the Irish Commissioner. And if that happens, then uh, we can have a relatively seamless transition. There's no doubt that uh, Phil Hogan was a very highly regarded commissioner in Brussels. i just seen one of the very senior uh, people of the previous team, uh, Martin Selmer, tweeting this morning about the trade deals that he essentially would have driven and made possible. Now, there's no doubt, and you've talked about the uh, potential nomination of Simon Coveney, uh, people of that calibre and ilk will be no doubt very, very capable in that forum as well. But that is the challenge now from a farming perspective, because Irish farmers now are left uh, not just without a commissioner, they've been without an agriculture com- uh, minister in Ireland. And there's this awful feeling amongst farmers that they are the forgotten about sector in all of this. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that it would happen at European level? Right, give us the right name and we'll give you, we'll, we'll let you keep the portfolio. Like, do, do they horse trade there like they horse trade here? 
Oh, absolutely. And, and, and in some respects, Brussels is the horse trading capital of Europe at this stage. Uh, of course, deals are done. Uh, and uh, the, the thing is, you have uh, 27 member states, but at the end of the day now, the big players are very much France and Germany, Italy and Spain to a slightly lesser extent. Ireland is in reality a smaller player. But that doesn't mean to say at times that we can uh, get ourselves manoeuvred into the top positions. The skill now is, and it is a very, very big challenge for the government uh, of the moment, to and hold on to that portfolio in trade. Because we have Brexit now a matter of a hundred and something days away from us when we have a whole new trading relationship with our largest single trading partner. Uh, we have the issue of the common agriculture policy and we have other international trade deals yeah. that are in the process of being uh, dealt with. And that is where we would be so well served by having the replacement for Phil Hogan coming from someone of the calibre you talked about, Simon Coveney. But there are other equally capable people. That's one side of it. But the other side of it, and I guess this is kind of the layman's question, it's, it's drilled into us all the time that just because an Irishman is the trade commissioner, He's a trade commissioner for Europe, not for Ireland. So technically, he doesn't work for us. He works for them. So so why is it important to have an Irishman in there as long as you've got someone who does a good job? Uh, yes, I, I, and that is true. And it is equally possible that there could be a commissioner uh, replaced that comes into the trade portfolio that looks after the Irish interest well. But the reality of life is, that no other commissioner will understand the nuances and the complexities of trade on the island of Ireland and east-west and west-east between Britain and Ireland as well as an Irish commissioner will. That isn't to say that they will be setting out to particularly favour, but they will bring an understanding to it. They will hit the ground running on it. And it's a very common uh, piece of jargon that will be used by all EU commissioners, in fact, uh, when they talk about and refer to national interests, etc. They will never say, uh, and and the outgoing commissioner was very much of this ilk as well, that he was never serving the interests of Irish farmers, but he would always refer to Ireland as the country that he knew best. And that is jargon that is used by all commissioners in Brussels. And I think that is the, the nuance and the benefit of having an Irish commissioner going into that portfolio in the weeks and months and the years ahead. Finally, I asked Paul Hosford to do it. I, I'll ask you as well, Phelan, given your, your knowledge of the importance of, of, of this. Coveney, yes or no? Uh, Coveney, uh, he had been my top three. Yes. Uh, if you ask me to go and get off the fence here, I will uh, pull the name out that has been around Brussels for a considerable time, Maria McGuinness, uh, formerly from the media business yes. and industry as well. Uh, and of course, uh, the tarnished and former Taoiseach Leo Varadkar would be an equally strong candidate. But there's no one uh, is more capable and better of fulfilling the job than uh, Simon Coveney. He's had previous uh, experience as an MEP in Brussels. He was the president uh, of the Agriculture Council at the time the last common agriculture policy deal was done. He knows agriculture inside out and it's certainly an appointment that would be very well received by Irish farmers, I would imagine. He's got the CV, let's let's face it. All right, Phil O'Neill from the Farmer's Journal, their markets specialist. Thank you, 1850 715 <laughs> Fiona, Fiona Corcoran texted me last night. I tweeted about, or I mentioned in one of our WhatsApp groups about a by-election following Simon Coveney's... Uh, Exit to Brussels, and she said, "Please, please, don't say by election." I already did. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. The opinion line on Corks ninety six FM with the indoor self service laundrette now at the Junction Vickers Road. Open every day to save you time and money. Self service laundry. ie.
Cork's 96 FM is now streaming even more music choice. More music choice. Check out the Hit Mix online for fresh new music. Keep on dancing like you ain't got a choice. And stream the all new Fit Mix for your workout. Listen on your phone and smart speaker. Turn up the volume. Or go, go, go to 96fm.ie. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Just going back to our homeless family that Jennifer brought to our attention this morning. She was very upset and she rang us just before 9 o'clock. The family that she saw. Uh, clearing up their belongings after obviously spending the night in the foyer of St. Patrick's Church. We've established that they are from Galway. We've established that there are three children um, and, and two parents involved. Now, we've reached out to all of our contacts and many of them have reached back to us. Uh, Cork Simon Outreach Team. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply are on their way to St. Patrick's. They may even be there right now to see if the family is still around. And obviously the outreach team at Simon will use all of their contacts and all of their knowledge to find them. Uh, thanks to Paul Sheehan and his crew at Simon for their help as always. Okay, thanks for that. We'll come back to it if we have any more. Also, should I mention, I mentioned Fiona Corcoran and you'll have noticed that Moraid is reading news today. And, and not Vic, because both uh, Fiona and Vic have very, very big days today. Very, very big days today because they have back to school days. Back to school days today for both of them. 
uh, Nancy and Charlie and uh, Tom and James are all headed for the school and it's first day at school for both James uh, Vic's little lad and Charlie uh, who is um, Fiona's lad and it's first day at preschool for little Nancy so uh, it's kind of a big family day for all of us here uh, as they head for the school so, <laughs> yeah, they won't be getting any more guest slots on the show. Remember when Fiona was working from home during the pandemic? Many's the morning we had guest slots and interruptions from the production team headed up by Charlie, Charlie and Nancy. Anyway, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Also, um, <laughs> overheard in Cork this morning. <laughs> overheard in Cork, parents putting the children into the schools. Overheard. Yes, 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 yes. Mommy, nothing so happy. Yeah. <laughs> Get out the door. <laughs> yeah. Prosecco in the cornflakes. Eighteen fifty-seven one five nine nine six. The weather has been only shocking. I don't. You don't need me to tell you. Between storm, I just did anyway. Between storm, Ellen. Storm Francis, nights of rain, wind. It's as if someone took away August and gave us back February in the last week. And we're just about getting sick of it now. Uh, let's go to UCC to Cahal Nolan. Uh, Cahal, good morning to you. A very good morning, PJ. We are heartily sick of it now. But, but on a serious note, like, is this the future? Is this climate change in action or is it just a wayward August? I suppose if we expand a little bit and we go beyond, let's just say, the August meteorological condition, which we will touch upon in a second, but looking at 2020 as a year overall, you can suggest that this perhaps is a glimpse of what future weather conditions will be like within the region and within Ireland in general. So obviously for 2020, we started off with exceptionally wet conditions. We had one of the wettest Februarys on record across many parts of the country. There was significant flooding along the Shannon region, again. And also then as we transferred into the springtime, we had the driest and sunniest spring on record. That in turn then has been followed by an exceptionally unsettled August and certainly the summer season this, thus far this year has certainly not been particularly pleasant. So to take a, a closer glimpse, let's say, at, at the month of August, within Cork itself, we obviously experienced two significant storms during that period that led to both widespread flooding. And indeed, if we look at the individual parameters within those two storms, we witnessed probably the second highest wind speed ever recorded in the country yeah. at Roaches Point at 143 kilometres per hour during Storm Ellen. And then, of course, during Storm Francis, we saw widespread flooding in parts of West Cork as well. And previously in the month, of course, we had some significant thunderstorms too, which dropped, I believe it was 123 millimetres of rainfall in a couple of hours in parts of West Cork. So really exceptional weather conditions. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking back over the Augusts of my life, of which there have been too many to remember now at this stage, I can't remember a worse one. Except maybe Hurricane Charlie, which was a long, long time ago. Of course, Hurricane Charlie in 1986 was certainly an exceptional weather event as well. It, it brought significant widespread disruption right across the country. I think the east of the country in particular was very badly affected by flooding during that period. But I suppose looking at the most recent weather conditions that we've seen, it truly has been exceptional with regards to the quantity of the precipitation that we've seen falling across the county and, of course, just the widespread nature of the severe flooding that we've seen. And it, it is certainly concerning. 
to, to see these trends develop. And I suppose even in a global perspective, at this particular time, we're dealing with multiple significant climatological events at present. We're obviously talking about the impact of Category 4 Hurricane Hurricane Laura yeah. in, in the Gulf of Mexico, while at the same time we're simultaneously dealing with over 1.2 million acres of wildfires breaking out across California. So yeah. just the contrast and the extremity of the conditions that we're seeing on a global scale, it truly is perhaps a glimpse yeah. of what future conditions you mentioned you mentioned contrast. Something I saw on my Instagram uh, in the last week or so was we were we were deluged down here, and and they were basking in the sun in County Donegal at the same time. That even that contrast on our little island here is is that down to the jet stream and the south coast and all that. So certainly with the two particular storms that we've seen as of late, the jet stream does have a significant role to play within the development and the location of those storms. So typically during the winter season, certainly not not so much during the summer season, but during the winter season when we see our typical storm season, let's say, it's usually as a result of the jet stream steering in areas of low pressure. And as they approach Ireland, they tend to accelerate, they tend to deepen and they tend to intensify. What is behind that really is a contrast in terms of temperatures between usually much colder air to the north and much warmer air to the south. But with climate change, what we've seen is that there's differential warming occurring across across different latitudes of the world in which the northern areas are actually warming at a lot of faster rate than areas closer to the equator. And yeah. essentially, the, this imbalance has caused shifts, let's say, within the jet stream itself. So sometimes we can see very persistent patterns within the jet stream development, whereby you can essentially get a high-pressure system stuck across a given area, as was the case, let's say, during the spring. And then, of course, at other periods of time, you can essentially get the jet stream basically stuck in place across yeah. a given area, which is perhaps what we've seen as of late with regards to the exceptionally heavy rainfall over the southern half of the country in particular. Yeah. Just the fact that does it have any, does that is there any correlation between that and and the fact that the sea has been unusually warm for swimming in this 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 despite the bad weather? I, certainly, I suppose. Of course, when we look at climate change, we talk about global warming. Obviously, we talk about air temperatures rising, which they have risen by close to one degree Celsius across Ireland over the course of the past century. But certainly, also we're talking about the increase in 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 sea surface temperatures too, and. Ireland obviously been an, been an island nation. It is disproportionately affected by any rises or falls, let's say, within sea level temperature. Around the south coast of Ireland in particular, it's probably the area that we've seen the greatest level of warming. And indeed, temperatures have been around about one degree Celsius above average also with regards to the sea surface temperatures. And what this essentially does is, particularly at this time of year, is that any storms that we tend to see coming in from the south, southwest to the Atlantic, they tend to then be that little bit stronger because essentially a higher temperatures basically mean more energy within the atmospheric system and these storms then have a tendency to become that little bit more intense and that little bit stronger yeah can we expect any improvement i've often noted uh, in the past uh, that september can be pleasant in ireland is is there any hope looking at the models and i know particularly working in your in your labs there you look well ahead you look at all the models and compare and contrast any hope of an improvement I suppose the good news is that there will be an immediate improvement in our weather conditions, certainly as we go into this weekend. So once we see the heavy tundra downpours that are forecast again for this afternoon and evening clearing away through tomorrow, Friday, 
we can expect to see a better day overall. There will be some showers, but generally they'll eat the afternoon and evening. The good news is that through Saturday, Sunday, and probably for at least the first half of Monday, we can expect to see high pressure developments in the northwest of the country initially, feeling a little bit cooler air across the country, but the good news is that it will be dry, it will be predominantly sunny across the majority of the country. Looking beyond that, I suppose, if we were to look at that into next week, there are some signs, let's say, that from Tuesday onwards, conditions may become a little bit more unsettled for a time. But looking at the really long-term picture, there are some signs that high pressure may try to develop to the northeast of the country, possibly bringing in a warmer southeasterly airflow, which, of course, will be more settled at this particular time of the year as we go on through the, the first half of September, let's say. So certainly there are signs of an improvement. We, we, we live in hope because it's been rotten. <laughs> it really has been rotten. Carl, thank you very much for that. Thank you very much, PJ. Take Cheers. care. Cheers. That's Carl Nolan from uh, UCC. He's a... Uh, Studying a PhD fellow in climate change there, and he, of course, is part of Ireland's Weather Channel, and he's become our kind of go-to man uh, in the opinion. Actually, back in June, it was Cahill who told us about the first good stretch we were going to have, uh, based on what he was seeing. Uh, and he was a good few days ahead of Midair and, and others with that. So we'll take him at his word and hope that he's right about September because I just can't stick looking out at this anymore. I know our problems are small compared to the poor devils in Bantry and Skibbereen and, and Roscarbury and anywhere else you're having yourself with regard to the damage done by the floods, but a bit of nice weather. And of course, there is that unwritten rule. There is that unwritten rule that when children go back to school, the weather gets better anyway. It's been there for years. I don't know if it's governed by climate change or by whatever, but it's there. So it is. 1850-715-996. Oh, speaking of school and the first day, Nicola. Yeah. How did Kira do this morning? Clara. Clara, big <laughs> She did grand. It was actually lovely. Um, it was set up um, very well. Now we all queued up and... Uh, we all actually got to take um, our kids into the school itself and get them settled in. Like what school of, was it? Uh, Quail School, Gartalling. Okay. So it was really, really well set up, yeah. yeah, yeah. Was she nervous or moreover, were you nervous? Um, I was nervous, to be honest with you, because you get nothing out of them. They just kind of sit there and she, like, we don't know what she did in preschool. She didn't tell us anything, like... <laughs> Wait, is a teenager? Yeah. <laughs> so now it's all a mystery what she's going to be doing for the next two hours. All a mystery. Yeah. Are you nervous about safety or about the virus and all that? I am a bit. Like, kind of what I think is that it's not fair what the government are doing. They're putting the onus on parents, principals and teachers to do the job of senior health officials. Like, I mean, it's in a pandemic and that's not fair. And I, I do think we're being gaslit a bit into sending them back. How do you mean, Nicola? So it's kind of, they're like, it's all grand and, you know, it's all fine and health measures. And if you don't send them back, you're stunting them. And there's no contingencies or anything. Like, I've had no solid contingencies. Like, I'm high risk and my, I think my husband still is. I'm not sure. Um, but, like, we've no, conting- no contingency plans. We don't know what to do, like. Yeah. And the school, have they been talking to you about what they'll have they to do? They have. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the only reason I sent her back was because I was confident in the particular school's safety measures. Like if it was a different school now, it might be a different story. Mm. But it's a it's a large school and the staff have been very reassuring. Like what kind of things have they have they put in place? I mean, God, she's Clara. She's what is she five? F- uh, five in September now. So um, 
they all have now, I only learned this this morning because, you know, there's always something that you'd forget. They all have their buskas that they're supposed to put all their stuff into. So like plastic boxes, I'm, I'm sure, like so they can clean them down. And they they have um, I think that they're not allowed to bring in lunch boxes, even though I just realized we've been <laughs> one this morning. Uh, they've hand sanitizers at the door. And I think that there was like a one-way system as well in the school for the parents collecting and dropping and you're only allowed to collect at a certain door as well. I see. Yeah, which is very good, yeah. So she's done now at what time? Uh, 12 o'clock. We must remember to collect her now. (laughs) (laughs) That wouldn't be the best start. I know, I'll be working away. (laughs) I set an alarm, don't worry. (laughs) So be honest with me. Was Was there... was there coffee and a creamy cake under plans this morning? No, I'm working from home, so it's like a break for me. <laughs> <laughs> there was me putting up all the pictures on Instagram and filtering them. So, yeah, um, I'll probably have the cup of tea afterwards when I calm down after collecting. I don't want to be too relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, good luck and, uh, Thanks, and cheers Jim. for the calls. Thanks a lot. That's Nicola. Uh, little Clara started today in Grail School. Gort Alling, a fine school. Actually, I, mentioned, I missed one of our own little family. Um, Pierce McCarthy, key of newsroom. Um, his grandson starting today, starting uh, play school, or preschool rather, uh, Charlie. I don't know who's be, who'll have the bigger smile on his face, Charlie or granddad. 1850 715 996 on WhatsApp. I'm feeling irate over that family from Galway. I really hope a social worker will be on hand to assist them. It's also a HSE issue, especially for the kids. They're missing out on every level. Boiled cabbage springs to mind with regards to the authorities at times like this. We must also realise the importance of Katrina Toomey, of Simone and more. Uh, DJ and the team, well done and thank you. As I say, we'll see what more we can find out about them and what more can be done for them. Uh, We don't know where they went, that was the thing. Uh, As Jennifer watched them at 5 to 9 or so, uh, got very upset, obviously rang us as as she was talking to Fergal. Uh, They were packing their stuff to move. 1850-7159 Just one, one quick message here today. Hi PJ, this is from Vincent at Cork Airport. Today August 27th is my work colleague's last day at work. Her name is Roma Cahill and she's worked at Cork Airport for over 40 years. So today is a special day. Please wish Roma all the best for her future from all of us at the Airside Management Unit in Cork Airport. Thanks, PJ. Vincent, thank you, because I know Roma. Well, when I say I know her, I met her over the years. Um, she wouldn't remember me in the sky above me, but I would have remember, been introduced to her. And interestingly enough, the, the man who introduced me to her uh, would have been my, my dear old pal, John Smith, who passed away earlier this week. So best of luck for the retirement, Roma. Let's go back, though, to the story we're following since the aftermath of Storm Ellen, the lovely monkey puzzle tree in Mahan, which, of course, was uh, torn down. And we've been following the story since to see what will happen for the future of the site and indeed for the tree. We were talking to Gerard who was thrilled to get himself five pieces of the tree that he wants to take away, dry, preserve and work on as a wood turner. And Peter Horgan uh, has been taking a fierce interest in it as well over the last uh, few days. Peter, good morning to you. 
Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. And I think just before anyone says, you're only talking about a tree, now there's much more important things. This tree has captured the imagination of a lot of people because it is much beloved of the south side of the city. And and you're and you're right as well, Peter. Just you know, because of the, your show today and all the things going on, and my colleague Eona Reardon rang me right after coming off air with you. You know, there are more important things. There are there are you know life and death issues that are going on in the city. But on this case, it is I think a kind of small beacon of array of light. And for want of a better word, it was you know a poignant moment when the tree came down last week. Um, and I I kind of got involved in it because. I, my cousin was on to me about it, about his grandfather on the other side taking him for walks. I remember walking down around Mahan, um, well before Mahan Point was built in the fields and seeing that tree and, you know, hearing my father talking about it, my grandfather talking about it. It's, it's something that was always there, you know, and after 175 years, it's now gone. And I just felt that, you know, there should be something we can do to commemorate, you know, something that's been such a focal point for so many people throughout the decades. Yeah. And over a century. Um, so I, I, I got onto Cork City Council after it went down. Cork City Council, to the credit, came back very quickly and said, look, it's actually nothing to do with us. It's, we don't own the land. We don't own the tree. But they did put me in contact with um, a developer uh, in the area who actually was the wrong developer who put me in touch with the right developer in O'Callaghan's. And it was Joe Keane I got onto in O'Callaghan properties. And, and to be fair to Joe and O'Callaghan properties, they've been super proactive about this mm. from the get-go. They were like... They, do they own it now? They do? They they own the tree and the land where it is, where the residential area is, they said. Um, and what they said is that, that when I rang him first, he said, well, I'll go down and examine it. They had to move it for road safety issues, obviously, because it had broken through the fence onto the link, onto the ramp, coming up towards Mahon Point. Um, so he, I said to him, look, is there any way that we can get the wood um, for, for, for something to do? You know, at that moment in time, I, I hadn't even spoken to you properly. Uh, you know, some sort of sculpture, some sort of memorial to the tree, something to do with the wood. And then Gerard had gotten on onto you. I got onto Gerard and then a local artist, Anne, in, in Mahan from Colorado, it actually was onto me directly then after on foot of your show, asking, you know, could she get some of the wood to use for, for frames, for pictures of the tree that she was painting? Wow. So I felt this was kind of a, a good idea. And then uh, Connor Lynch in Tesco Munster was onto me saying that they had read about it and the examiner heard it on the Echo. I heard on the on the opinion line, and they wanted to do something maybe in the shopping centre or maybe something that, to get involved with it was an idea they wanted to get involved. So I felt this was building up steam. I kind of pulled everyone together in one email, and Joe, to be fair, he was a great point man um, to, to, to talk to people. He talked to Owen Lettuce um, about doing the, the, the scientific issues of the tree, and they examined that over the weekend. So two nights ago, um, they were moving the tree. They had to move it um, after, the, after Storm Francis. Uh, they had to move it off the ramp for, for TII. And what they did is that they cut it into 12 different pieces. And they've moved those pieces out to ovens. Now, Gerard has five. Diane has what she needs, the length of feet that she needs. And there's a certain amount of other wood left that, that is salvageable. And what is salvageable is going to be salvaged, hopefully, uh, in the near future. Um, so that's sort of where we are with it. Um, I, I, I know Gerard was on yesterday, and like I, I've felt that maybe a small he's going to try and do up a small a small sculpture, a small bowl or something that maybe we can give to St. Luke's nursing home because there don't be so many residents down there. Now I haven't spoken to St. Luke's nursing home on this, but I feel like my grand my late grandfather was there and I know there's so many residents down there who from the locality who would remember the tree and I think it's a it's a nice it's a nice thing to do, I think. Do you know? So I think it, it's a good story that's coming out come out of this. Usually we hear about 
trees coming down and stuff like that and yeah. forgotten about nothing here. But I think this is such a specific tree, specific point in time for people just to pause and maybe, you know, it's it's something that I wanted to, to track and I'm glad I have been able to play a tiny, tiny role in tracking it. Uh, and I'm looking forward to what the artists can, yeah. can produce now. Certainly. Of course, the wood, as Gerard was saying, it'll take time to cure, to prepare, to dry yeah. and all of that. But certainly what comes out of it would be... And I, I love the idea of the shopping centre having something, certainly. Yeah, and, and, and it's something that can be kept safe. I mean, there was a few residents on to me. There was like maybe a bench could be used, maybe something on the walkway, and that would have been a great idea. I don't know if the wood... I, I'm not a wood expert. I, I don't know if the wood is malleable enough or strong enough to create a bend from looking at the tree the other night it's quite a, a strange fleshy kind of internal wood it's almost pink um, mm. which is quite interesting to see um, uh, and, and, and Diane was ta- ta- talking through the colours and all that Yeah, it's, quite, quite, quite explaining quite it's, it's a particularly fun wood wood to work with because they don't, yeah. they don't get so much so much of it but when you get at it it's very easy to work with as well in, yeah. in, in particular. It'll uh, probably take the bones of a year for something to yeah. come out of it I was talking yeah. to Dan like they, they, need, they need certain kilns to get, yeah. to get He's going He's hoping to have a piece ready for us for Radiothon next year which would be really really brilliant you know, yeah. so. And I know Dan plans to, to uh, present a copy of the frame uh, of, of a painting that does two man community centre, and so that's that's two right. items kept in the locality already. Hopefully next year, Fantastic. and I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I'm, right. I'm glad something good came out of it. And thanks, BJ, to you and Deirdre and all the team for for keeping on top of this because I think it's something that has caught the imagination in a bleak time at the moment Indeed. in the news. Absolutely, Peter. I'll leave it there for no reason other than time. Thank you very much. The opinion line with PJ Coogan on Courts ninety six FM. Just before we go back into our third and final hour today, can I mention that this is a very significant day. It is 140 days ago today that the Debenhams workers received the word that their jobs were gone. That was Holy Thursday. They got the most curt of text messages, stroke emails to say that their jobs were gone. And they have been holding out ever since that day for a proper package, a proper severance, a proper redundancy from their employers. And they have been striking and they have been picketing and it's all official and it's all above board and it's all mandated by mandate, their union. Um, But it's important to mention and we're delighted to mention they are listening and they're taking photographs to mark day 140 of the Debenhams protest. And as you say every time, lads, keep her lit. 1857-15996 text to whatsapp is 083-396-9696 the email is opinion at 96fm.ie the twitter is at opinionline96 with the t- hashtag of ol96 and of course there's the facebook the corks 96fm facebook page message us there and mark your message for the attention of the opinion line let us go back to the monkey puzzle tree in man, uh, which hopefully now bits of it will turn up all over the place in the form of different little projects. Uh, Councillor Kieran McCarthy tells us that we, he has a meeting with O'Callaghan Properties and Blackrock Credit Union this afternoon about doing community projects with the tree. And Peter Horgan, who had on before 11, mentioned the name of Dr. Owen Lettuce, who'd been giving some scientific advice. Owen, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Um, you you were called on to uh, to give some scientific advice here with regard to the future of this tree. It's an unusual specimen, which is why people want to make sure that it's it's preserved in some way. 
Yeah, I suppose it is. Um, I mean, monkey puzzles are um, reason, reasonably uncommon uh, in Ireland. You'll see them around the place. They're quite uh, distinct looking, uh, which means people notice them uh, more than maybe other trees. Um, and that particular one, because of where it was positioned, because of its kind of cultural and heritage value, is particularly uh, important. And I suppose as a, as a proud Carconian myself, um, the, the, it's the heritage and the cultural value that's that's um, uh, that's foremost in my mind here. It does have a scientific value. It does. It's it's a um, it's an impressive tree in its own right. I mean, these trees are, are native to Chile. They can live up to a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred years in their in their uh, yeah in their in their native. Uh, environment. Um, they're 200 million years old. So when the dinosaurs were, were roaming the earth, these things were, were standing um, or their ancestors, let's say, were standing. Uh, and that's why they look so odd and so strange. They've got these thick uh, pointed uh, leaflets uh, and that is to stop dinosaurs from eating them. Um, so when you look at a, a monkey puzzle tree, you are looking at something that was around when the dinosaurs uh, walked the earth. So for all of those reasons, this is an impressive tree. The, and the name is interesting, Owen. I, I remember being told as a small boy about monkey puzzle trees, and I don't know whether it's true or not, that they're the only tree that a monkey can't climb. Is that true? I think I think there's a bit of um, old wives' tale going on there, but certainly um, the, the story goes that, um, that once it came to Britain, um, and in sort of um, 18th, 18th century and into the 19th century in Britain and then ultimately in Ireland as well, there was a, a habit of collecting weird and wonderful plants and trees. And it was a sort of a status symbol, you know, look how, look how rich and important I have. I've got a monkey puzzle tree in my garden. Uh, and it was when the tree was, was, was around in the UK that um, somebody... Um, presumably uh, or reportedly said, you know, it, it would puzzle a monkey to climb that. And I think the, the name has stuck uh, since then. Right. Um, whether a monkey can climb it or not, I haven't tested it, I haven't tried it. Um, <laughs> there aren't too many monkeys uh, around to try. We won't be borrowing one from Fota anytime soon. So, so what, what expertise have you been able to bring to this? Well, I'm a plant scientist, uh, PJ. I work in the School of Biological Earth yeah. and Environmental Sciences in, in UCC. Um, and so what, what I've done um, in a personal capacity, because I have a personal interest in this as well, that um, I, I've collected seeds from the site uh, and I've met with uh, the representatives of um, O'Callaghan properties who own the site and they've been very, very helpful and very, very supportive uh, of all of this. So I've collected seeds um, and I have sown those seeds um, uh, uh, as of this week. Now, um, I'm not going to give any guarantees that they will germinate because the problem with this tree is that it's, it's, it's called, it's dioecious, which means there are male and there are female trees. Many trees, many plants can self-fertilize. So right. they, they don't need a male and a female to, for that to happen. Uh, this is a female tree and we are looking for, we are hoping that there has been, or there is a male tree around the vicinity that has uh, fertilized the seed. If, if there has been 
and 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 the male pollen can can travel right. up to a few kilometers. So this may be a male tree in Black Rock or uh, Rochestone or wherever. Right. Uh, if that's the case, then the seed will have been fertilized and we'll get some germination. Fingers crossed. If not, we won't, and that's um, that's unfortunate. That's but it's fascinating, worth, though. Uh, yeah, it's worth giving it a try. I think. Is that why we often saw two of them together? Uh, generally, um, generally, if they're planted, you know, they're sometimes planted in groups or they're pl- sometimes planted in, in rows. Um, and you can't tell when you look at the seed and even when you look at the very young plants, you can't tell whether it's male or female. So often people planted three or four or five of them together in the hope that one of them might be a male uh, and fertilize the rest of the females. But it's a bit of a lucky uh, dip uh, when you're planting them. Um, so uh, fingers crossed on the seed front. Right. So they don't look any different or anything? Um, uh, w- once they're mature, they, they will produce different types of cones, you know, the um, the, the sort of fruiting bodies on the trees. So the, the male cones tend to be elongated. The female cones tend to be more rounded, let's say. Yeah. So certainly when they're older, you can tell the difference between a male and a female tree. Uh, but uh, when they're young, certainly not. Uh, and that's, that means it's a bit of a lucky dip right. uh, in terms of planting well, them. Well, well, let us know if they sprout. I will indeed. It may take, um, according to the literature, it may take up to about six months for them to germinate. So they're sitting uh, at home uh, in my house um, and we're waiting patiently uh, to see if something happens okay. um, uh, and, and fingers crossed. That's absolutely fascinating. Owen, listen, thank you very much. That's Dr. Owen Lettuce from the Department of Plant Science. Imagine being a plant scientist and having a name like Lettuce. I'm sure he's been slagged about it more than once at UCC. There you go. And they say every day is a school day. Every single day is a school day. And today we've learned, those of us who didn't know already, I didn't, that you have a male monkey puzzle and a female monkey puzzle. And this was a girl tree in Black Rock. So she can't have any babies unless we can find a male tree. So Owen can... Ah, listen, lads, this is the story that just keeps on giving. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the indoor self-service laundrette, now at the Junction Vickers Road. Open every day to save you time and money. Selfservicelaundry.ie Six to nine AM on Corks ninety six FM. You got nine out of ten, buddy. Wow! Uh, I'm, I'm half broken. Uh, listen, you should have googled number eight as well as number ten. Make <laughs> 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 sure they're organic. <laughs> I'm indeed, like. Casey and Ross in the morning. Corks ninety six FM. This is Corks Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 On Cork's 96FM. Cork Koi Poo, I think, has the tweet of the day regarding the monkey puzzle tree. Is, is on the dating app Timber. Thank you, Koi Poo. 1850-715-996 i come back to it because there's lots of responses to that but there's a very interesting um, event coming up in September um, while we were all talking about people getting sick with COVID-19 and people ending up in intensive care uh, through COVID-19 of course something we mightn't have thought about at the time was some of those who 
in ended up in intensive care were doctors and medics themselves. And medical professionals who work in intensive care up and down the country are to attend a virtual meeting in September where staff of CUH will share their stories of becoming so sick with COVID that they ended up in the ICU themselves. One of the organisers is Dr. Patrick Singh. Patrick, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? It's something we could easily have forgotten, of course, that all those people on the front line working with it all day, every day, not only were they likely to become sick, but they were likely to end up needing in intensive treatment. And that is, in fact, what happened. Yeah, no, that, that happened to, to a few of our staff. I mean, not maybe quite to the same level uh, as we saw in Italy, uh, in northern Italy or in, uh, or in England. But, you know, we, we had uh, two in particular. Uh, one was a, uh, a young uh, intern at the time. Um, and uh, he's now gone on to, thankfully, he made a, a very full recovery, which is great. But, but he uh, was very, very sick. And uh, he's now become a trained GP down at Bantry. But and he was with us in the ICU. And then we had uh, we had another patient uh, who was a um, one of our ER administrators and uh, and moved subsequently moved to uh, medical manpower, and she got incredibly sick and um, was prone ventilation dialysis you know everything that we can do and uh, she was really so sick at one stage we were trying to think of transferring her to Dublin. And uh, thankfully, things started to turn right, um, and uh, she made a full recovery, and, and um, is, is pretty much back to normal and thinking about getting back to work. So, another great outcome. Um, yeah. The purpose of the event is what, Patrick? Well, I suppose it kind of it started, um, you know, when all this started back in February and March. Um, to be honest with you, I started doing a bit of cycling in and out. I lived down in Bandon, and um, I suppose I had a bit of time to think about things a bit. And I, I was a little uncomfortable with with the uh, you know being called frontline staff and and the sort of hero uh, bits and pieces that people were mentioning. I mean, I kind of associate more frontline staff with kind of trench warfare and World War One and some of the awful atrocities that happened over there. And I think that really was the case with us. And I think really we we were just doing our jobs. I mean, that's what we're trained to do. I know it's a different environment and I know there were different challenges and there are different risks. And, you know, obviously, you know, with some of the, the staff becoming, you know, infected, uh, that, that really does focus your mind a lot. But uh, so uh, really that the whole emphasis of, of, um, of what we're trying to do is trying to put the focus back on, on patients and families and, you know, some of the tragedy that we actually saw in the, in the, in the unit. I mean, it, it, it was awful and, you know, people not being able to come in and, and be with their relatives, um, you know, at these moments. Um, and, you know, some people uh, very sadly passed away. So it's really trying to, I suppose, change the focus back onto the patients, the families, the elderly, you know, cancer management patients who had their management uh, interrupted. Uh, so we're doing this cycle on the 3rd and 4th of, of September, and yeah. there's a lot of, I mean, originally it kind of came out of um, uh, the Ring of Kerry cycle. I mean, I, I did a bit of medical work on that, and Tony Daly, very kindly, of Partnersilla Hotel, he ran that or organized it, and he um, sort of helped me maybe put this together. I mean, originally my idea was maybe to have 5,000 people go up to Dublin, but obviously with COVID and everything, that was clearly not the case. And, you know, I didn't think probably like a lot of people, like that this was going to, you know, turn into a complete pandemic and it was going to, you know, affect all of our lives, you know, as much as it did. 
So it's really, it's been whittled down quite a bit now to just ICU doctors and nurses yeah. uh, and, and uh, associate staff. And what we're doing is we're, we're cycling the 3rd and 4th of September from, you know, multiple locations. So there's a team going from Belfast down to Dublin, Galway, from Limerick, from Cork, um, and uh, from Waterford. And we were originally going to go all through Port Leash, but then obviously with, you know, the lockdown happened there. And I don't know, it would be still wise for, you know, all of us to be congregating in one place. So we really had to separate it out and you know, we're involved public health and in, uh, in getting recommendations from them and how to actually conduct it. Yeah. And so we're, we're, we're cycling up, I'd say, on the 3rd and 4th, that's a Thursday and Friday. And then on the, the, on the 5th, the next day, you know, I've never really done a conference like this before. I mean, normally we'd have, you know, doctors and nurses at their conferences and, you know, we're not a very big society, the intensive care society, and I'm not that many of us, but so usually be maybe 100, 150 of us would get together in a meeting or a hotel or whatever in Dublin. So this time what we're doing um, is we're having a webinar and the slightly different bit to it all is normally these are kind of closed conferences that really, I suppose, would only be of interest to, to doctors and yeah. nurses. We talk about a lot of scientific stuff. We are doing that for the first two sessions, but the last session uh, which starts, I think it's 12.15. It's going to run for about an hour or so on yeah. Saturday the 5th. Um, we're yeah, going to open it up the, to the that's public. That's the bit I wanted to get to, Patrick. Yeah. And I was yeah. reading through that. That's unusual that the doc, doctors yeah. and, and, and scientists will talk doctors and, and scientists and medicine stuff all day long. Yeah. What's the purpose of opening it to the public via Zoom? What will well, they be able to learn? Well, I mean, I think that, it is, as I say, it's one of the first times I've ever seen this done. It was kind of an idea a few of us had. So I think people will be able to, to, to get an idea you know, of where we're at with it and what's, what we think we're heading into, into the winter. Um, I mean, there's going to be three speakers. Colm Henry, uh, who is the chief clinical advisor, and people have probably seen a bit of him on television, and he often is on primetime, etc., and he's going to talk uh, on his thoughts and reflections on where we have been and you know where we are, and maybe might make a few comments on on you know where things are going and what the HSE and what the their thought process is. Coleman O'Loughlin, who's director of the ICU up in um, in in uh, the matter, is going to speak on you know a very challenging area. I mean, I think you know the public might get a flavour of some of the ethical issues around the care of of these patients and you know some of the the decisions we had to make, which which were very, you know, uh, very difficult, yeah. I mean, even more difficult, you know, maybe in in uh, in America or New York and and Italy, you know, where they really became extremely limited with their resources. I mean, yeah. we we made a lot of preparations over here, yeah. and maybe it didn't get quite as bad. As we, we we heard horrific stories from America yeah. and fr- from Italy yeah. of of yeah. what you might call battlefield triage. Yeah, where, never where, got that bad yeah. really for us. But but I mean, in fairness, you know, uh, the hospital here and, and elsewhere at HSE, credit to them, we did do a lot of preparation and, um, you know, the general public swung in too in a huge way. I mean, I've never seen the, the generosity and you know, people coming in with designs of ventilators. It, it was fantastic. It was a real kind of come together of, of the country. I hadn't seen anything like that. So I suppose, you know, the conference is, is to sort of, you know, include people in in this, and maybe to show people so they can they can ask questions and answers. I'm not quite sure how that exactly works, but they can ask questions uh, about you know how 
we did it and how some of the yeah. decisions are reached and, you know, where we're going. And, 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 and I what assume as well, are. Patrick, that, um, you know, for, for the member of the public who will be tuning in via Zoom and I mentioned there how, it, how that, that's done because you have to pre-register for it. Mm, that's right. Obviously, a scientific session will be conducted in language that can go over the average yeah, Joe Soap's head. Yeah, that won't be in this case. Now, what we're going to do is, is uh, we're going to do our scientific bits for the first four, sort of four hours. So we'll start that early in the morning and we'll run over a whole load of cases. That won't be open to public because I don't honestly think, like you say, that would be of, of huge interest. Uh, but then it's from 12.15, I think for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half, that will be open to the, to the public. Um, and, you know, I think we're well aware of who's on will be watching. So, you know, we'll be, we'll be, you know, so that it's in layman's talk, not scientific doctor's talk. So, I mean, I think everyone will be able to, and be, I think it should be of interest to everyone, including us as doctors, nurses, you know, physios and, and right. pharmacists in the hospital so and hopefully the general public. So it's, it's so, Saturday week. And if anybody wants to, to register to go yeah, and there, watch it, you, you, uh, it's an email, uh, and we'll, we'll can send that out, or maybe you can, you can post it uh, to R Williams, that's R, the letter W I L L I A M S, at COA dot IE. COA stands for College of Anesthesia. There is actually quite a complex pre registration website, but I think, you know, that would take me a while to read that out. But if you get on to Rebecca, uh, Williams in the college. Uh, there's 500 people can come on it. I mean, that's the limit that we're allowed. So I'd say, you know, it, it might uh, register relatively quickly. Okay. You're probably the first people to hear about it. So okay. there you are. Okay. Well, I, I, I shall be sending my own email. Post And the last, in fact, the last person speaking of that is, is certainly a, a very interesting, that young doctor yeah. uh, very kindly has agreed to speak uh, from, um, uh, he's from Bantry originally, uh, my neck of the woods. Oh, no, and uh, he is going to talk about, I mean, he actually fact, never uh, got ventilated or was put on a life support machine. So he can actually sort of tell you the experiences and we'll speak about, I think, you know, when we looked at him with our echo probes and various other things that we do. And, you know, I've spoken with him quite a bit since then. And I think it was particularly terrifying for him. He's only 23 years old, and, you know, looking at this. And he knew exactly what we're all talking about and, you know, the, the, the implications and thankfully, you know, he did very, very well. And, it, you know, it, it's a very good story. And, you know, we're as delighted and as relieved as he was because he was one of ours. Um, so he'll speak at the end. Um, so I think hopefully that should be of interest to, to everyone, including myself. Indeed. All right. Listen, thank you for your time today, Dr. Patrick Singh. Thanks for that. That event, if you would like to see that on air, or online rather, on air, online, uh, on the 5th of September, which is Saturday week, uh, you can send an email to Rebecca Williams, and the email is rwilliams, that's small r, williams at coa.ie. It's free, won't cost you anything, but that's how you get yourself registered. It's only 500 spots to watch it on Zoom. rwilliams at coa.ie. 1850-715996. With regard to monkey puzzles, people still commenting on it. I'll get to some of them before the end of the show, but I want you to read I want to read something to you. It's the opening line, or lines rather, of a new book and it's the kind of line that would tempt you to pick it up and start reading. Connor Cronin was a pudgy boy, he muses and he made for a pudgy corpse. That's an interesting open line. Caroline O'Donoghue, good morning. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Your work 
read back to you. It's just wonderful. Yes, Connor Cronin was a fudgy boy. <laughs> he made for a fudgy cup. <laughs> and as any novelist knows, the opening line is where you can catch or lose your 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 reader, yeah. and certainly that line would 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 uh, in, entice you to read on the book. Let alone the title, and it's called "Scenes of a Graphic Nature." Like that's yeah. the one that that you grab off the shelf. So talk to me about the book and talk to me about life. Oh, well, I'm I'm so glad that you think that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really proud of that opening um, sort of chapter, and it took a long time to get there because this book is very much you know I'm I'm from Cork. I've lived in London for almost ten years, and so it's kind of like. It's a book. It's a book to English people about Irish people, and it's a book to Irish people about English people. It's, um, it's a bit of a bridge, and I, I, the kind of plot of it basically is a sort of uh, second-generation immigrant. Uh, this young girl called Charlie. Uh, she's after making a film about her father's early life, um, where he was the kind of survivor of like a tragedy that shook kind of an island off the coast of Kerry where he grew up on. But you know that was in 1963, and he's developed this very dark, bleak sense of humour about it. So he's talking about the various pudginesses of the corpses, um, which is when we meet him. And it's about it's very much about this young woman um, who's grown up with these ideas of. Ireland and what it should be and you know like any kind of sensible English person is a bit disgusted with being English and would love to be a bit more Irish she goes to a film festival to show off the movie she's made about her father and then she finds out that everything her father has told her is wrong and then she goes on the sort of odyssey of uh, rural Kerry to sort of find out what really happened and uh, some fairly graphically natured scenes happen along the way it's a kind of a, it's a coming of age kind of thing and realising you're, well you're not actually all you thought you were um, but that's no harm. Yes, totally. Yeah, very much that. And it's kind of like when you have to separate the stories that you hear about yourself from the people that you really are. And it's also to me as well, because I've been here, you know, while Brexit has been happening and all this. And it's like, um, you know, it really shows how people, when they're feeling insecure about their identity, when they're feeling lost or on the back foot for any reason, whether it's economical or spiritual or whatever, they rely on you know, heritage and they rely on ancestry and they rely on this kind of vague idea of who they think they might be based on the country they think they're from. Yeah. And I find that very fascinating, you know. Like as 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 someone living in London from Cork, do do you ever find the kind of thing of that, you know, even your dearest English friends kind of tilt the head a little bit and look at you and there are elements of your Irishness that they will never understand no matter how much they know you and how much they love you. Yeah, very much that. No, that's absolutely spot on. Yeah, and actually, the inspiration for this book in the first place came from. I was it was in 2017. I was at a dinner party with some English friends. I'd had my phone off all day, and the sort of the the big story about Chum had just come out. Oh, the Chum babies! About yeah. the, ba- the babies, the septic tank, all that. And I was just suddenly, I just come from a kind of a meeting. I plunked my bag down at this dinner party, and someone said, "You know, oh." Yeah, like, what on earth is happening with those babies in the septic tank? And I was just like, what? And, you know, that kind of thing where you often feel when a story like that about Ireland comes out and you're abroad and you feel like you have to provide a context. Yeah, and, and you're you wondering, can the ground open up and swallow me now till I at least read the flipping paper? <laughs> yeah, totally. So you're looking to like defend something that you yourself aren't even very boned up on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, it's very, will the ground just swallow me Cause, up? Because there is this you know? thing still with the British that, you know, if it happened in Ireland, we all know about it because we all live on one square mile. 
Completely. Oh my God. Trying to explain the golf dinner to my English boyfriend at the moment is hilarious. Yeah. So this is your second... I feel like I've I've got a view into like a parallel universe and I'm sort of communicating it back to them and they don't find, they don't understand anything. It's the gentle shake of the head that goes, okay. 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 Yeah. Oh my God. Have you tried explaining the Angelus to English people? They go mental. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. Much as they love you, they'll never get it. This is your second book, no. and and you count Marion Keys among your fans, Mayor. Well, I hope so. She's certainly very, very kind. Like she is one of those people who really, like, she reaches out to kind of young Irish authors who are up and coming. There's no, there's no. You hear all this stuff about. Oh, you know, authors feeling threatened about people coming up behind them or whatever. And Marion is the absolute opposite. I think she actively looks for young Irish women coming up and to celebrate their work. And I really feel so grateful to be one of those people. You know, mm, well, I've, I've said it here in the program many, many times. I mean, I, I love reading Irish writers, female writers. I think we we have we we punch so far above our weight as a small country with female no. writers. It's phenomenal. You know. It really, it really Incredible. is. Incredible. You, you've got your own podcast as well. Uh, I, I love the name of it. Sentimental Garbage. <laughs> yeah, Sentimental Garbage. Um, yes, actually, Marion has been a guest on that podcast. And what Sentimental Garbage is, it's really, it's about women's writing. And I found, especially when I first started publishing um, back in 2018, that people were kind of asking me these questions like, oh, is it chiclet? Is it romance? And they were kind of a little bit condescending when the way they kind of probably wouldn't have been to a male author writing about the same themes. And yeah. so really it's a kind of a, it's a analysis of sort of women's writing and the celebration of women's writing. And I'm kind of thinking about why so often... Um, women's writing gets either kind of just sort of discarded as being kind of very commercial or it just gets lost to time, you know? I've said this many times on this program. I love crime and some of the best crime that that I've read in the last 10 years have been written by women, Irish women. It's Tana French, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. so there's um, there's so much talent there, and I I do think women are really good at crime because women um, know what it is to feel kind of vulnerable, and they know what fear is, and they know what it is to sort of walk around at night and yeah. have your sort of keys in your hand and that kind of stuff. And I yeah. do think they take very naturally to that genre. Good, good. All right. Well, the best of luck with the scenes of a graphic nature. What is London like now? I mean, is it are, are finally emerging from the lockdown or are you still living in a bit of fear over there? Well, I think we're, we're the same as back home, really, in that everyone was really good when there was very clear rules. Do you know what I mean? When it was like, when, when everyone was queuing outside shopping centres and that kind of thing. You know, the English and queuing, it's a, it's a cliche for a reason. And, um, and you, everyone was very well, particularly in London, everyone was very well behaved and very considerate of one another. Everyone was volunteering. And now it feels like because the rules are less clear. And I do feel uh, very strongly that, that the, the lack of clarity from this government is absolutely intentional. And that they sort of say extremely vague, very complex things about households and what we should be doing and shouldn't be doing, but this is okay, but this isn't okay. I think they're sort of waiting for people to make mistakes so they can blame them. Who would you rather have in charge, Boris or Michal? Oh, well, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You're from Cork and living in London. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'd, I'd take me whole out of out of loyalty. 
Listen, good luck with the book and good luck with the career and thanks for taking our call today. That's uh, Caroline O'Donoghue, uh, the author of Scenes of a Graphic Nature, a book about the Irish in Britain and the British and how, how we interact with one another. And I just love, I'll give it to you again, I love that opening line. Connor Cronin was a pudgy boy, he muses, and he made for a pudgy corpse. 1850-715-996. Just on WhatsApp, uh, this has come in, apropos of nothing, lads, Maybe you should be looking for the true story with regard to the golf thing. The vulture bill passed by the government on the last night, drafted by the judge, who was then the Attorney General. He'll be passing judgment on the vulture bill. The vulture funds had people in the golf event. Thank you. 1857-15996. On the monkey puzzle, Kate says, isn't it great the way the owners of all the big houses brought in all these exotic trees to add to our experience? Must have cost them a lot of money back in the day. No, they did it to be different, to look better than the rest of us, Kate, but I take your point. And because this is a female monkey puzzle tree that was knocked down in man, and in order to try to grow from the seeds, we need something to fertilise it. Pam says there's a very large monkey puzzle in her neighbour's garden in Old Court in Rochestown, if they're looking for another one to fertilise it. Thank you. Thank you. There's even a dating agency been set up now for monkey puzzle trees. IPJ, the other aspect of the tree is that the adjacent foundations of the big house of the Lakelands still survive between the ground next to you. You're kidding me, Kieran McCarthy. I didn't know that. Reputedly, it was one of the largest mansions in Cork in the 19th century, and part of the wine cellar was found through archaeological excavations in 2003. There's a wider local history at play here. I remember being, as a boy, down in that part of Mahan Black Rock and you would see all bits of what looked like a broken up building it looked like ruins that just lying there in the field I remember it like it was yesterday so maybe that's what that was thanks a lot uh, Kieran <laughs> as regards the, the people who put the nice trees in should they feckin' stole the land out from under us <laughs> that's in response to Kate that's true 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the indoor self-service laundrette. Now at the Junction Vickers Road. Every day washing and drying, done within an hour. Selfservicelaundry.ie Turn it on. Cork's Gold Emerald Award-winning sports show. The Score on Cork's 96FM. Join me, Trevor Welch, Sundays from 2, for the best music mix and all the latest sport, where we focus on the Cork County Senior Hurling Championship, Cove Ramblers take on Dundalk in the FAI Cup, and Munster take on Connacht in the Pro 14. Join Trevor Welch for the score. The score. This Sunday from 2pm on Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. I've often spoken on the programme uh, before in relation, for example, to people of different ability with regard to sailing and, and, and the adaptability of sailing and the fact that pretty much anyone, when they step on to a boat, can be taught the rudiments of sailing. And this idea that it's elitist and that this idea that it's only for posh people isn't really true at all. Uh, and here's a very interesting story that we came across in the last few days. A number of children living in direct provision in Cork have spent this summer learning to sail down in beautiful Oyster Haven. 
through a non-profit organisation, Safe Haven. Shauna Fallon, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? Good, and reading about it, the kids just love it because sailing is the leveller. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your dad does for a living or doesn't. You step aboard that little boat, you get that rope, you hold that sail, everyone's equal on the water. This is it, um, and we're getting great feedback from the kids this year. It's a pilot programme we've launched with kids aged between 10 and 13 down at Oysterhaven. And I was speaking to one of the youth workers this morning, and she spoke to one of the boys on the course, asked him how he was, and he said, I'm so happy. (laughs) And she was just saying it really kind of gave her goosebumps because it's been a tough summer for young people in direct provision, and to see them all splashing about on the water and having a great time has just been really rewarding, I know. How did it come about, Shauna? I set up the Safe Haven project about five years ago and we had concentrated on doing Asgard-style tall ship voyages, but there were no tall ship voyages at all this year um, due to COVID. And we had a long-standing relationship with the Oyster Haven Centre because we'd used their yacht to do those bigger boat voyages. So, yeah, we just came up with the idea of starting off very young kids giving them the opportunity to get into sailing and hopefully following them through for the next five years so that we might end up with a couple of instructors um, at the end of the day. Because it was, from your own background, I mean, you, you learned or you took up sailing as a very, as a very young girl and, and it's something that is with you to this day and you wondered if you, wanted, if you could pass that joy on to others who mightn't otherwise have the opportunity. Yes, well, as you say, there, there's a wrong perception about saying being elitist. And when I was 11, Sligo County Council sent um, myself and others from a very rural spud-picking part of Sligo. I can say that because I was <laughs> born on a spud farm. Um, but we had, had no um, water sports links or there just would have been no chance of us doing anything like that. And yeah, sure enough, I, I, I kept it up and became an instructor myself. So I know that subsidised programmes do work. And if you give a young child a lifeline and a chance to do something new and something exciting, they will often seize it with both hands and just go for it. Yeah, some of the children have come through it now and they actually want to go on and learn to do it maybe competitively and learn to teach it. Yes, we had uh, one young girl on the first week, Hayat, who took to it straight away. And we can see from her evaluation forms that she's already expressing the wish of wanting to go on and become an instructor. She got her sailing certificate that week and she's just kind of mad to come back down again as soon as possible. So it's been a great success for a pilot year and we hope to have more kids down next summer if we can. And, and who, I, I suppose, who, oh, someone has to pay for it. Yes, and actually we were surprised this year. So we... We're a very small charity. We've no overheads. It's entirely volunteer-run, so any donations to us go directly towards project costs. But we wouldn't typically have a great profile or much support from members of the public. But something about this programme this year, when we launched it in June, had members of the public putting their hands into their pocket and giving us donations, you know, whatever size we're we're delighted with. It doesn't usually happen. So on foot of that, we were actually able to extend the programme from an initial plan of having 10 children down there to having 16 down there so yeah we've we just kind of small grants and things like that but the public support this year was real help in, in being able to expand it excellent and i presume that plans are already in place for 2021 
definitely. We This is the final week of the programme this year and we'll have a debrief uh, meeting over Zoom, of course, next week and, and get working on 2021 for sure. How did you get around, you mentioned Zoom there, how did you get around COVID restrictions on the water and stuff like that? Well, it's actually perfect, really, because a lot of the boats used are single-handers. Yeah. So... Oysterhaven Centre have a vast range of wonderful water sports activities from paddleboarding, kayaking, windsurfers and, and sailing boats. And a lot of them you'll just have one um, child in the boat or two. And we had quite a few sets of siblings and indeed one set of triplets this year. So they're all contained in small pod groups that don't intermingle and they have very strict kind of social distancing, arrows on the ground. We went down and inspected ourselves and they really have excellent um, adherence and I think it's a very safe and, and fun place for kids to go. Finally, how, how did the Buddhist monk come into this story? That's amusing. Um, <laughs> well, just the world is, is a small place and strange and wonderful things happen and you can make connections no matter where you are in the world. So it was just a chance encounter um, that one time that led to me meeting the owners of Oysterhaven and then starting this wonderful project five years ago. So it's just been strength to strength ever since that. Fantastic. Wish you well with it. It's a lovely idea. As I said, my son uh, has been involved in sailing, um, sailability for a number of years and you, you, you see the value and the fact that on the water, everybody's the same and that seems to be the beauty of it. Good luck with it for the end of this programme and the rest of it for 2021. Good luck, Shauna. Thanks so much. Thank Cheers. You. That's Shauna Fallon, uh, which is a super, it's a super idea. Super, super idea. 1850 Let's get Kevin was pointing out about um, actually listening to Caroline talking about the, the book. And this, one of the central elements of our book is how the Irish see the British and how the British see us and view us and think about us. Kevin says, the thing I found with them is they don't know us. Well, Kevin spent years over in the UK. They don't know us, but we know everything about them. Plus, they've little or no interest in finding out, which is why Coveney was so successful on the Andrew Marr show a little while back. Just to find out a little bit more about our homeless family uh, before we head out today. Colm was on from Cork Stand together. We were told about them last night, he said, and we went down as late as 11 to see whether they're there. They hadn't returned, probably trying to avoid being seen, probably went back late as they possibly could. Um... Uh, if you can track them down and we can be of any assistance, please do not hesitate to contact us. Francis said, I thought you couldn't be evicted during the pandemic. What a sorry state for the country to be in. Well, we don't know their circumstance, but all of the various agencies that, that work with the, the homeless are doing their level best to uh, to figure it out right now and try to find them and get them some help and find out more about them. The Simon Outreach team were on their way during the morning to see what they could find out. Uh, Just on the whole um, Phil Hogan thing before we go, uh, Shona says, no, he was told, hand in your resignation, it would look better for him. It wasn't, it was a very tight fists that he did it. That's about it for today. The programme edited by Dirk Nishantley, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. See you tomorrow, just after nine. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions, including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.